0: Hey guys. Uh, my name is Sean. Um, the lead pastor here for redemption Peoria. If I don't know you I want to say something real quick, cause the guy who's standing up here, Tyler, that dude cracks me up. Now he kind of looks goofy at points, but let me tell you something. Here's, here's what I know about, uh, everyone I know at redemption Peoria. Um, I love them. I enjoy being around them. And then there's a couple guys like Tyler who he's not trying to be funny. He just kills me all the time. Um, he, so this is, let me just tell you a little story about Tyler real quick. Okay. Um, it was illegal up to, I don't know, three weeks ago to pass, uh, to, to post your ballot on Facebook once you voted. You, you could, it was illegal. It was against the law to do that. Who you voted for, whatever it is, you could not do that, illegal. Tyler said, I don't like that rule. And so he went through the Senate and passed it. So now you legally can post your ballot on Facebook single handedly because this dude who was up here he doesn't even have kids. He doesn't even have kids, and he's like on his school board uh, meetings making sure they're spending their money the right way. Oh, my gosh. Every time, we spent like two hours the other night talking about minimum wage. This dude kills me. Um, so with that being said, the, the reason I think that's great to, to, to say is because um, the, the reality is I don't know a terrible amount of, um, of you who are new. And so I, I wanted to say this. Because I know Tyler, if I would have met Tyler in high school, I probably would have not wanted to hang out with him um, that 's just the reality uh, we 've actually talked about that just who I am and who he would have been but I am grateful that I know him, and I'm grateful that I know most of the other people who are in this room. And with that, that that makes me just kind of want to say something. I I get my energy, man, from being around people. I don't know why it is. It's the way that God has wired me. So let me just very candidly say this to you very quickly. If I don't know you, would you, for the love of God, please come introduce yourself to me in the lobby, okay? I will probably forget your name, okay? But if you pass a bill of some kind, I'll remember you, okay? So that, that's fair. So that's all I need you to do. Um, no, so please, seriously, I, I want to... And honestly, one of the announcements that John had brought up, the park day, a big part of that, we're calling it a family reunion. I know it's cheesy, but it's like, we're calling it a family reunion because there's some of you who have been in this from the beginning, who've been in communities, there's some of you who are new, and we're like a family, get it? We're like a family of God coming together. Okay, well, and then we're going to do sack races, and anyway, okay, I'm really jacked. I keep trying to push this and no one gets excited about it as much as I do. So um, here's, here's where we're going to start. If you don't know, we've been going through the book of Mark, and you can open there to Mark chapter 1, but before we get there, there's a lot that I want to do and um, something before we start each week, I want to explain something that is specific to the way that we do church and explain why. And I'm going to try to take every week for the next like 12 to 15 weeks and explain specifically some of the things that we do and, and as to why. And here's, here's the one that I want to explain uh, right now. If you're new to church or you've been, maybe been coming for a little while, um, you've probably recognized two streams of thought when you come to a church on Sunday morning. They're kind of two ways to approach the Bible when somebody comes up and stands up and begins to to teach it, okay? Now, my goal is not to downplay one over the other. I'm going to explain why we've chosen one path over the other. So there's a lot more than these two, but these are the two predominant thoughts. You can come to the Bible and you can teach topically. And what that means is you can come and you can, let's say we want to talk about love. And so what I do is I go to the Bible and I, I grab every verse that talks about love and then for four weeks we talk about love or, or marriage, how to have a better marriage, 10 ways to have a better marriage or how to get out of debt. And so we begin to talk about money. And so you, what you do is you extract verses out of the Bible and you say, here's what we do, this, that, that. that. Okay, so that's one approach. And it's, there's for the most part, that's the way that our, our uh, church culture has, is kind of approaching the Bible right now. That's kind of the cool way to do it. Um, And then there's this other approach and I'm not saying it's better for the sake of better, but I would be lying if I didn't say we thought it was better because it's the way that we would do it. And and that is the exegetical approach, the verse by verse. And what that is, is essentially we say, Hey, let's just take the Bible. Let's pick a book in the Bible and let's just go through it like verse by verse by verse by verse. And whatever it says is what we're going to talk about. Now, again, we do that path because we think it's better, and so I just want to explain a couple reasons why, and my, my job right now is not to downplay the other way of doing it. I just want to explain the pros and cons as to why we do it this way. The, the, the problem that we foresee in topical preaching, and the reason we don't do topical preaching, though there'll be moments in our time where we do, we'll, we'll take a break, and we'll talk three weeks on maybe what the, the church family looks like, or or what love looks like, or whatever it is, but for the most part we, we take this approach is because um, what we find is, is if you over and over melee people with topics, you, you look at your church and say, here's what we see, we're not being good neighbors, so I want to grab all these verses on how to be a good neighbor, what, what we've seen is people tend to take verses, and, and the reality is you can almost make the Bible say whatever you want, Right, so when we begin to talk about like money, right, um, what we see this on a high level. Those of you who watch channels twenty through twenty three, um, TBN and all of its sister channels, is you begin to see what people do is they take verses out of the Bible and they make it say what they want to say about money. And so suddenly, if you give, it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, even though that's talking about for forgiveness. And, uh, and, and then you're, you're showing Old Testament accounts of riches upon riches, and people had to turn them away, and you're gonna have a gold building, and drive a Mercedes, and give us your money, because if you give us $700, you'll get seven months of blessing, and we can make the Bible say whatever we want, because topically, we can pull from things and begin to distort scriptures. Now, I'm not saying all people do that who teach topically, but that's the air that we see can run into that now, the reason we, we go verse by verse is we recognize not just is the whole Bible in error, not just is the whole Bible edifying to our souls, but as a congregation and across the board, all of us are dealing with various things and we want the Bible to make the call on the things we want to talk about, right? So if you have questions about predestination, if you have questions about money, if you have questions about marriage, well, as we approach these things, we say, well, what does the Bible say as we come to them instead of just pulling them out of their context, how does it say, what's next Bible? What's next Bible? What's next Bible? And so that, that's the reason I just want to put that in front. That's one of the things, the core values that we do is exegetically, we're going to teach verse by verse by verse in the Bible. And right now we're doing that in Mark. And I'll continue to try to put in front of you things that we do and why we do them. Again, if you're from a ch- church that does topical, I'm, they're not sinners for doing topical, okay? Um, there's a lot of good in doing topical. You can recognize who your audience is and see some things and approach some things. That's just not the path that we've taken because of the convictions that we have, okay? Um, now, Here's where we're going to start. In Mark chapter 1, um, if you weren't here, here's what we decided to do over the, the course of the next year and going through Mark. We, we chose to ask the question, who is Jesus based on what he does, what he says, um, and, and what the, the, the word of God puts in front of us. And the thing we immediately found is um, as you read through the book of Mark, Mark is writing, not so much like a camcorder account, because this is where we get goofy when we begin to see discrepancies in the gospel, not necessarily a camcorder account of Jesus, but he seems to be telling this, as um, uh, a Redeemer professor would say, like an epic drama. Adrian Smith would say it's like an epic drama. Mark is unfolding, and what you see is, as you read through the book of Mark, no one knows who Jesus is. They're constantly asking, who is Jesus? Jesus? But we, as the readers from the very first line in chapter 1, see that, oh, he's the Son of God. And what we've done in the last couple of weeks is okay. Who is Jesus and what is he about? And what we have found is he's not just the son of God, but, but he is God, as we, we, we saw that. And it's more than that because he comes with the gospel, which is this idea of victory. And, and then we're told as he arrives on the scene because he's baptized and here's the Trinity, the, the God, the son, God, the, the father speaking and the Holy Spirit um, hovering over there. This, this spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness and he beats the temptation. He beats the devil, just like an old representative in Genesis 1. Adam couldn't do. So he's not just bringing victory, but he is a new representative. And what he is about is this thing called the kingdom of God, because he said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here's Jesus saying, I'm here. This old age that used to exist is gone. And now I'm here bringing about a new age. And so we kind of wrestled with what that was and we'll get more into it. But more importantly, immediately we found our job in that is to see the kingdom of God, see who the victor is and repent and believe to see our sin and say, this is not the way that I should be walking, repent and believe. Now, immediately from that text, what Mark, the writer of this, this epic drama, he, he sends us immediately from this call for all of us to repent and believe to bring about his first disciples. So here's, here's what I'm going to say this morning as we get into this. Um, I, I want to talk about the elephant in the room in the Christian church. I I want to talk about this morning, because I think the text is pushing us in this direction, the rugged nature of discipleship. I want to talk about how some of you have allowed syncretism, consumerism, compromise into your relationship with God, and in this passage, we are forced to go, that is not the way of the cross. And now I I, I preface what I'm going to say with that because it's going to be a little harder for us to swallow today, okay? It's going to be a little bit more for us to go, whoa, okay? But all the beauty of the gospel can only be framed in what we're going to be talking about today. Okay. And it's important you understand that. So we're going to read this passage. We're going to see the literal, literally what is just happening here. And we're not going to do as much language breakdown as just be in the moment of what's happening, literally what happens. And then we're going to see symbolically what happens here for, for every disciple since Jesus Christ, what this has been called to. And then we'll see something beautiful at the end. Now I'm going to challenge you. This is going to be pretty hard. Okay. I'm going to say some things that the Bible puts in front of us that are not easy for us as Christians, especially if you're not saved to hear. Um, and so I would just challenge you to stick in the end because I, I promise if you stay till the end, uh, the gospel will wrap us up beautifully and, and, and it will be uh, well done. So here's where we're going to start. Uh, let, me, let me read the passage for us again. Uh, and then I will kind of give us um, just a, a simple breakdown of this. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. Sorry, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired servants and followed them. Okay, so let's just talk about practically what happened. Jesus was just tempted. Jesus just beat Satan. Jesus just told us to repent and believe. And Jesus is spending the most, most of his time in this region of area called Galilee. It'd be the same way we would call the Phoenix area the valley. It's like Peoria, Glendale, Scottsdale, just the valley, right? And so um, here's Jesus. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers. He sees Peter and Andrew, and he says, Follow me. And there's like this Forrest Gump moment, right? He's like, Lieutenant Jesus. And he jumps out of his boat and they come to Jesus and they follow Jesus. And then he continues to walk across the, the, the Sea of Oh, Not across. He'll do that later. Um, he walks along the Sea of Galilee. And as he's walking, he sees two more people, James and John. He says, Hey, follow me. And they leave their father, Zebedee, and the servants, and they begin to follow Jesus. And this is Jesus' first disciples coming on the scene. Now, just practically, or, or not practically, maybe literally, what's happening here, so, so you can kind of understand, especially. Um, if you weren't raised in a church um, environment, you don't know a lot of these things, but maybe if you were, you've heard about fishermen more than you could um, possibly ever want to hear about fishermen in the, the the day of the Bible. But here's a couple things to know. Um, when they laid down their nets in this moment, this is a big deal, okay? Um, nets, just so you know, I mean, this may be a side note, but would cost up to like half their salary in a year. So if you're like a, a, a contractor and you make $40,000 a year um, and you spend $20,000 on a truck and Jesus says, follow me, that's like you leaving your truck. I mean, honestly, these nets were very expensive to make. They're very expensive to buy. And so these fishermen in this moment leave their nets, which is insane amounts of cost. They leave their livelihood. I mean, that, that's a, a big deal for them. And then furthermore, as you see with James and John, they end up leaving their father. Now, um, so... Fishing is in, in this time, and even probably today, is. Um, there's a lot of nepotism. I was just talking to a buddy about this word nepotism. There's a lot of nepotism when it comes to, to fishing. And what I mean by that is it's passed on from one generation to another, um, kind of favoritism. So it's like take over the family business. I want you to take over this family business. You're my son. I want to give it to you. And so um, the moment that James and John leave their nets, the moment that James and John leave their father, they're leaving behind what essentially was given to them, what was going to be passed on as an inheritance. They're, they're leaving behind a big thing. This is a big moment for them. This is a big deal. Okay. So, so literally they're leaving behind uh, their livelihood. They're leaving behind their family. They're leaving behind these nets, which were expensive and they're just following this guy. That's literally what happens. Okay. So here's what's happened since then. Um, I don't know why this keeps popping. If that's my fault, sorry, Matt. Um, since this moment, Every disciple has read this passage. I don't care if it's in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 14th century. You can find commentaries over and over and over on this of people who have seen the response of these four men and it has messed them up. It has messed them up. Because there's something more going on in this passage than dudes dropping thread on the ground or dudes just walking away from their father. There is something that is completing the call of repenting and believing and saying, I want you to leave behind all these things. And it has haunted men like Martin Luther, it is haunted men like Augustus, it has haunted men over and over and over again. It has haunted these men to go, okay. Whatever's happening here, they're leaving their own. I've been called to do the same. So whatever syncretism or compromises has seeped into your heart, I just want to challenge you. What we want to put in front of us right now is the call to follow me is more than just I'm going to go to church. The call to follow me frames something, everything, everything we do to go. Everything you have is mine. Everything you do belongs to me. It is about me. This has haunted men for ages, and my prayer is that it would haunt us as well. So let me just read um, a quote by Jesus himself in Luke 9.23. This is what it says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So, so Jesus calls these men away from their livelihood. Where's dinner coming tonight, bro? Follow me. Where am I going to get the money? Follow me. Okay, what about my family? Follow me. And he puts in front of them this moment, it's not just this kind of quasi, yeah, no, 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 you could do what you want. No, no, it's not like that. I'm asking you to lay down everything you have. Everything you've known, everything you plan to do, this is what Jesus puts in front of these men, and I would venture to say this is what he puts in front of us. And it's not an easy call, is it? Because Christianity, we don't like to process this. Your very life should be counted as lost. Now, for them, it's hard for us to get um, behind all this because it really starts with the moment, right? There's this moment, we, we kind of have the first, outside of Jesus being baptized, this kind of real moment. I mean, Satan's uh, kind of tempting Jesus for 40 days and we don't really know, and then he kind of comes on the scene, we don't know how long that takes, but here in this, there's this actual moment where he looks at these men and say, says, follow me, and, I, and, and I've realized um, we're three weeks into this thing, um, and a lot of you guys um, who I don't know, you also don't know me, and so... Um, Though I I know many of you guys, and we're friends, and we've been friends for a while, um, you've heard my story. A lot of you guys haven't. I want to very quickly just share who I am and and my story of of Jesus looking at me and saying, hey, drop your nets and follow me. Okay, so um, I think I've said this before. I was not raised in a Christian home at all. Um, Matter of fact, both my parents growing up were uh, drug addicts. They both made meth, and uh, they manufactured meth and uh, so, so they sold it, and they also did meth. Um, my mom was brilliant. Uh, I mean, really smart. In Nebraska, her her, uh, junior year, she uh, uh, tested in the top 3% of the SATs in the nation. She was offered a lot of scholarships to major schools her junior year in um, high school, but her dad got a job in Phoenix, and she lived in Omaha, Nebraska. They lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and so when she came out here to the valley, she lost all of her friends, and she hated life, and uh, so she dropped out of school. I mean, threw it all away, and she met my dad, who is, though I love him and though he will eventually become a member here, um, he's not as smart, um, okay, and so my mom meets my dad, and it wasn't this long, drawn out relationship. It was kind of, I mean, maybe a month long, um, and then Sean came into the world, right? So um, now, now here's the thing: they they drop out, both of them drop out of high school, and my mom and dad don't get married, and so I'm kind of raised in this environment where my mom and dad are doing drugs, and uh, I'm kind of going through. They don't want to deal with a custody battle um, because. They're drug addicts, and no drug addict wants to end up in a courtroom. So they just kind of find these agreements. And so sometimes I'm with my dad, sometimes I'm with my mom. But for the most part, I, I grew up in the ghettos of Phoenix. Uh, we slept in cars and parks, um, food boxes for the most of our life. I mean, we figured out huge systems when it comes to food stamps, and um, that was kind of what my life was like growing up. All right, uh, very extremely poor. Um, I grew up uh, predominantly around Hispanic and Black dudes who um, became my best friends, who were in my wedding, and um, and that that was just us. We were poor little kids who. Uh, who knew our parents kind of loved us, but it was kind of us versus the world, and um, it was it was in a weird way really awesome, um, but really terrible at the same time, right? So um, here here's the, here's the thing what, uh, that happens. My mom one day decides on meth that she is going to build a car from the ground up, okay? Now, if you don't know anything about meth addicts, they can go, okay? Because when they're on meth, they ain't sleeping. What's the point of sleeping, okay? So they're going for like two, three weeks at a time. My mom literally builds a car from the ground up, gets parked from a junkyard. She's selling meth. This is how she's funding the whole project. And she builds this little Datsun, um, and it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a meth vehicle, right? So it's just this Datsun, and she spray paints it pink, Okay? Um, and so this thing was awful. Well, she decides at the end of my seventh grade year that she wants to take my brother and sister and I, um, I have two, a younger brother and a younger sister, uh, to Texas, Granbury, Texas, where my aunt is to to to, to stay uh over the summer. So we drive this car, it literally breaks down on the on ramp, and we never see that car again. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? Um and so we we end up going to the small town, maybe a thousand people of Granbury, Texas, and uh um we're there uh and we're poor, because my aunt and uncle are still poor, and we realize we're not going to be able to get out of there. So my mom and my mom's boyfriend at this time decide to start making meth again and sell it to the neighborhood. We literally, the Myers family, single-handedly introduced meth to Granbury, Texas. And if you look up statistically, it's every single uh, year, it's going up higher and higher on the, the, the meth um, account. So that's something that, that's great for us. And so, um, so, this. Uh, here, here's this, here, here's this uh, my, my mom and my mom's boyfriend are manufacturing meth, and eventually word gets out, and so they get caught. And so uh, there's a drug bust. I'd been in a couple drug busts in my life. This was big because it was Texas style, and so there's helicopters and um, trucks, and they come in. They take my brother and my sister and I. We go to foster care. My mom and my mom's boyfriend and my aunt and uncle all go to prison. My mom's boyfriend ends up taking the load because my aunt and uncle just sell him out. He gets 55 years in prison. My uh, mom ends up getting uh, 10, but she ends up only serving five. And, uh, my brother and sister and I go, go to this foster care. So here's what happens. Um, after certain time, uh, my dad can come get me, but he couldn't get me right away because he was in prison. Okay. So he's in prison in Phoenix. When he gets out of prison, he's able to come get me and take me, but he can't take my brother and sister because their dad is in prison for murder. Okay. It's a lot of prison. Um, and so uh, they have to stay in foster care. They come get me, and we come back to Phoenix. And I end up going to spend eighth grade year to Shea Middle School and end up going to Shadow Mountain High School. Matadors? SMHS? Okay. No? Wow. Okay. Um, so, so I end up going to, to Shadow Mountain High School, and uh, I had a, a buddy who uh, is a firefighter now in, in the Phoenix uh, fire. His name's Eric And a great guy, well, his mom and my mom were best friends. When she came to Phoenix, one of the first people that they met, they became best friends, and they did meth together, which, you know, draws people together. Um, And so they they, they became really good friends. Well, so him and I became really good friends because we're constantly hanging out. I mean, when you sleep in a park with someone, you become really good friends. Not to mention, we peed the bed till we were, like, 10, so we were, like, high five, okay? So, um... (laughs) So so that's something we had in common, and we, 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 uh, we got to know each other. Well, well, when I came back to Phoenix, um, over the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year in high school, um, he stayed with me the whole summer. We would take turns staying at each other's house for the whole summer because our parents didn't care. Um, and so he stayed at, at my house for the whole summer between my freshman year and sophomore year in high school. And one night, we're sitting there. We're playing a game called Twisted Metal. Every time I see if anybody knows what Twisted Metal is, okay, no one. Um, Twisted Metal, it's this game, this old game where these trucks just fought each other sounds awesome, right? And so um, we played it till like 3 a.m. till we beat it with Warthog, if you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you're lost. So uh, we, we, we beat this game, and it's like 3 a.m., and we, we, uh, we lay down, and uh, he's, like, he's like, hey man, um, so do you think we're going to go to heaven when we die? And he just asked this question, like out of nowhere. I mean, we've never really had this long, drawn-out um, conversation, and I go, of course, you know, and I jokingly and I say this every time because I jokingly say, like, dude, we just beat Twisted Metal. Of course we're going to heaven. Um, but but we, we, uh, we, we end up starting talking. What he does is he ends up um, unfolding the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible on how the world is going to end, um, begins to tell me that story the same way his mom, when, now she's a meth addict, would tell him as he would go to bed, okay? So Mary, his mom, would be like, all right, you're going to bed. Good night. Now there's going to be horses and they're going to come down and they're going to bring swords of fire. and There's going to be blood in the streets. And I, and, and now Eric, now she's on meth though. So it's more than that, right? They're like fast moving swords. And anyway, so, um, so, so he begins to tell me the book of revelation and unfold this whole thing over and over. And I'm listening to him and I'm like, good Lord. And then he just ends up saying, well, I'm glad we're going to heaven, man. That, that's awesome. Now he falls asleep. I don't fall asleep. Okay. So, So the next morning I'm waking him up. It's like nine. I'm like, Hey dude, get up. We're going to church. Okay. And so we tried to go to this church. It was, it was, uh, we missed the service. So we ended up going to a night service and we walk into this room. There was maybe 25 people faith covenant. This church was there for six months. And I thank God every single day that the church was here because they're reaching uh, people. And that's for me, just a side note, when I plant a church, I'm excited that there's 150 people in this room, but I just don't give a crap. Like, that's not what I'm about. My goal and my, my, um, my desire is to honor the Lord and what we do, because I recognize there was a, 55-plus-year-old couple who ministered to 25 people in this little ghetto neighborhood. And because of what they did, I get to stand here. So so more than anything, I'm grateful for what God is doing in these smaller things. And in this small church, it's a hyper-charismatic church, okay? So I walk in, my buddy and I walk in, and there's people speaking in tongues, okay, which is next week, um, speaking in tongues. Some people every now and then are like waving a flag. And there's this lady, she's like 55, long uh, gray hair, and she's just screaming at people. And she's like, you, you and you are the reason. And okay. And I'm just listening. I'm like, where am I right now? Okay. Like, this is just like at home. And so, um, so, 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 and her name was grace. Cause we kids just kept saying grace in your face, grace in your face. And we laughed the whole time. We laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Well, well, um, at the end of service, I don't know what happens. I, I got to be honest. At the very end of service, um, I find myself, at the front, talking with grace, these people um, surrounding me, and just going through what is, if you don't know, something called the sinner's prayer. Like I, I would say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I ask that you would come into my heart. This whole classic, if, if you're um, in any sense a traditional church idea, that's kind of what it was like. And so I'd said this prayer, and um, it was probably a quarter mile uh, on, on the way home, um, but man, I had taken a couple showers because I was a teenager at the time, only a couple, um, but, but I would taken some showers at the time, but I never felt clean on the inside. And I remember that quarter-mile walk, and I, I know this sounds over-exaggeration, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize anything, but legitimately, you guys, I seriously felt like I floated home. Like, honestly, it was bizarre. That, I mean, and I, I know it's, the relationship with God is not based on feeling, but it was something more than just, hey, you're sick, it was like, God's done something. And from that moment, the guy named Luke there, who my, our son, our oldest son, his middle name is Luke, he's named after him, um... This guy named Luke, who was at that church, began to disciple me, and he said, read the book of John, and so I read the book of John 30 times, had no idea what that thing was talking about, and he would over and over just help me as I had questions, and he grew me over and over and over. Well, that church closed down, and I ended up becoming going to another church through the youth ministry, becoming a pastor there as an Assemblies of God church. Well, the reason that's important is because for the Assemblies of God, there was this, I had this moment, like Peter and Andrew, James and John, where Jesus called me, and, and all I knew, all that was in my heart, all that I could feel was I want to know this guy now i don 't fully understand the trinity i don 't understand the bible i don 't understand even who Jesus really is, but i 'm telling you there 's something more i 've experienced my whole life going after stupid little trinkets over and over again, but now i 'm finding myself this this hole, this gaping hole is slowly being filled by the love of God, and now I want to know him more, and this was my moments. And now slowly for, for some of you guys, it happened, right? Progressive. Maybe for some of you, it wasn't a moment, but after a year of, um, of being around church, after uh, some time spending time with, with Christians, you go, dude, I think I'm a Christian. And then there's this call to not just say, Hey, believe in me, repent and believe, but now follow me. And so my relationship began to grow over and over and over again. And so uh, the first thing to go, man, I, I if you said a cuss word, you were it was game over, okay? Um, and then I wasn't allowed to do certain things with my now wife, Candace, right? And we would want to be sexually, we'd want to do things, but now God's removing that. And now he's removing music, and now he's removing mu- movies, and now he's removing friends, and he's slowly dissecting who I am and what I do, and he's taking away these things that I found my identity in. So much so, my senior in high school, I feel like, um, now I think this was just me, but I, I felt like I shouldn't play back basketball. Um, So I didn't play basketball my senior year. Oh, that was awful to watch my team do what they did anyway. So, so there was this removing, there was this follow me. And there was big parts of that where I tried to earn it. If I could be honest, there was moments you can ask Candace when we first got married, man, I'm like bringing all of our furniture out onto the patio or to the patio on the driveway. I'm like, we're selling it all. We sold all of our movies, like putting our kids out there. Um, We're just getting rid of everything. Okay. And because I wanted to say, Hey, I'm following because this text haunted me. It just haunted me, follow me, leave my nets, leave my family, leave everything behind. There's this rugged nature to discipleship that woos us to come after Jesus Christ that is not a casual kind of nuanced walk in the field. It's hard. And so I knew that as I continued to read the text and I continued to see what God was doing as he continued to sharpen me. And that was my moment. And my prayer is that you as Christians have felt the weight of what that is. That you recognize there's this grittiness to following Jesus Christ. There's this uh, pick up my cross and die daily. There's this um, I've been crucified with Christ. It's, it's no longer I who live, but it's him who lives within me. There's this calling saying give, give, follow, follow. Let go of your nets and follow me. Uh, so I've thought through this because to be honest with you, America in the last 150 years is very, um, is very unique, man. Like the Christianity we know, it's very unique, you guys. And I'm not trying to just say that because it's the time we live in. It's, it's a unique time we live in because... We have times of, of huge apportions, hundreds of years of people who, when they said follow Jesus Christ, that means legitimately chopping off genitals. I'm not kidding. Um, moving to mountains and never leaving caves. And then it meant hard, long things that in, in the end, w- w- we would look at and go, that's crazy. But, but I, I feel and I sense sometimes that the pendulum has swung a little bit. and We go, well, if it doesn't feel right, then I don't know if I want to be a part of it. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, follow me. Let go of those nets and follow me. Leave your parents, leave your livelihood, and follow me. So um, there was a, we'll call him Mr. Hudson. His first name is Jediram. J- J- I, I always mispronounce his name, but he, um, he learned how to read at the age of three. Brilliant guy. He ends up graduating Yale at uh, 18 years old. Graduating Yale at 18 years old. He ends up becoming, he feels the, the, the call of God to be a missionary. And he ends up getting called to uh, uh, Burma. So if you don't know where uh, Burma is, it's uh, right by India. It's no longer called Burma. But um, he was called to this really hard place. Uh, and, and and he's called there to, to bring the gospel. No one has heard the gospel before. And he had three wives, uh, twelve children. All three wives died. Six of his twelve, uh, thirteen children. Six of his thirteen children all died because it was extremely hot. Disease. He was in a place that didn't speak the language. He wanted to translate the Bible there. It was hard. Thirty-eight years of doing this. Well, here's here's I want to give you a glimpse of the the rugged nature that I feel like we kind of miss, man. The the rugged nature, when Jesus says, follow me, here's your moment to come follow me that we need to leave behind our nets. This is what people before us in the early 1800s processed following me. So so what this guy does is, Mr. Judson um, ends up asking this woman to marry him, his first wife. But before he does, he uh, looks at the the woman's husband. He ends up writing a letter to the woman's husband and asks for for her blessing. Now for us, we say, hey, could I marry your daughter? I'd like your blessing. For those of you who, who um, would do that, right? And what I would challenge you to do that. But let me just tell you how he a- uh, asked this, because it's, it's more than just say, hey, can I follow you? Right? This is what he says um, to, to ask this man for his daughter. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure or her subjugation into the hardship of suffering of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to dangers and of the ocean, to the fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the uh, acclamations and praise which shall re- uh, redound to sit to her savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? And then he says this in the last four words he didn't say this but he just finishes with can you consent to this so for him to follow me says and I want a wife and and I want to love her and I want to have children but let me just clarify what that looks like if we're going to do this together honey we're going to move to this place are are you okay with with brutal heat are are you okay with sickness are you okay with insults and persecution are are you okay with dying or are you okay with that and any father in this room would go no I'm not okay with that. I, I want comfort for my daughter. And I have a daughter. I want comfort for my daughter. I want you to know she's taken care of. But, but for this man, it says, listen, it's, it's not that I don't want comfort for her, but, but I want the glory of God to be shown to Burma more than I just want my comfort. And, and that's the trick, right? And that's what I want to get at. And, and, and there for a moment, I, I, I want to focus. Because I, I don't think following Jesus just means emptying your bank account right now. I don't think it necessarily means leaving your father or your mother. I don't think it means giving over your career so you, you would just go live in the wilderness. I, I, I don't even think that, that um, it's as you process marriage and your relationship to go, man, I think I should be a celibate because that's following Jesus. I don't think it's those things. Um, but, but here's what I would say. If those things are an end and not a means to an end in which Jesus Christ is, then I think you need to give up those things. So, so, so let me say it like this. Um, if you are not willing to give your money away, then it's an issue. If you are not willing, like so many Christians, and this is, we have such a family value over Christianity in America, to walk away from your family because the rest of them are Muslim and they'll kill you if you become a Christian, if you are not willing to do that, If you are not willing to say, here is my career, I know what I want to do, but it's in your hands. Here is a relationship, God, I want to marry, but if you don't want me to, I'm okay with it. If we are not willing to do that, because the truth is we're not supposed to copycat Judson's actions, but I would say we're supposed to copycat his willingness and motivation. We're not to look at Peter, James, and John, and Andrew and say, hey, um, that's what I need to do. I need to literally lay down my nets. I don't have nets, but I'm going to lay these things down. No, no, there's something more going on here, isn't there? there, there, there there's, there's, there's something more for them to go, I'm willing to give this up because the truth is they actually go back to fishing. We've always taught it as like it's a sin, but in the end of, at the end of John, you find these guys fishing again and not in a sinful way. They went back to doing what they've always done. But here's the trick. They were Christians before they worked at Vanguard. They were, they were Christians before they were single mom. They were Christians before they were a student. They were Christians. And a Christian says, whatever is mine is only mine to reflect the glory of God. But we hoard, man. We say, this is mine. This is what I do. Here's how I want to play it out. And we have comforts and we have values and we have certain motivations in front of Jesus Christ. And they're wrong. That, that's wrong. And I, this is the part where I said it's hard. Jesus has asked you to give everything. And if you don't give everything, then, then you're not worthy to follow him or be his disciple. He would tell us that essentially, if, if, uh, he talks about uh, looking at a plow, taking an end of the plow in, in Luke 9, and looking back, you're not fit to follow the king in the kingdom of God. So essentially, if you don't burn these bridges and say, hey, listen, I'm going to be a mom, but, but I, 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 I'm a mom so that I can reflect Jesus Christ in what I do. I, I'm going to get married. But if my husband does not draw me to Jesus Christ, I want nothing to do with him. Man, I want to do this as a job, but if it does not bring glory to God, I don't want that job. I want friends and I want family and I want deep relationships because I don't want to be lonely. But if that means these relationships pull me away from Jesus Christ, I don't want them. This is what is put in front of us to Follow. I read a book every single year. It's called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And I have a lot of quotes only to get you your mind around what is really being put in front of us that we get lost because sometimes we can become products of our environment in America and in American Christianity. And so there, there's this great quote by um, um, A.W. Tozer in, in The Pursuit of God, a phenomenal book. This is what he says. There's within the human heart a tough and fibrous roots of fallen life whose nature is to possess always to possess it covets things with a deep and fierce passion the pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in prints but their constant and universal use is significant they express the real nature of the old man and the verbal symptoms of a deep disease the roots of the hearts have grown down deep into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die god's gifts have now taken place of god and this is us this is where our heart turns to, and, and it's wrong. We've been asked to leave our nets and follow Jesus Christ well. Now, now, here's what I'm saying. When you pursue him, something amazing happens. And this is where we'll start to wind down because I'm definitely going over. Um, when you begin to turn all of your attention away from those things and follow Jesus Christ and say, everything that I have is yours, Jesus, something amazing happens. You become less um, introspective. You become less focused on yourself. And, and then you begin to think of yourself less. And what happens is um, you follow Jesus, but he makes you become a fisher of men. So, so, so you don't follow Jesus and then become a fisher. Of, no, no. You follow Jesus. There is one command for you in this in this whole text. One command follow Jesus, if I focus on Jesus, if I'm with Jesus, if I give everything to Jesus, if I'm for the things Jesus is for, he will make me a fisher of men. So I'm to live for God before man. I'm to live for his glory and the world around would see that. And that is why an all of life interview is important. That is why your jobs are important. That is why your relationships are important. Because if it's given to God, the world around you says, whoa, and Jesus makes us a fisher of men. He turns our hearts. He flips it around, and now we are about what we should be Out. If you are a Christian in this room, that is, that is suddenly, your life is no longer not just about you, and it is no longer just about Jesus, but because of Jesus, it is about everyone else. That's what we've been called to, man. If you are in a community, you look at that community and go, this community is not about me. It's, I'm here to serve the people in this community. If you're sitting here on Sunday, I'm just telling you, this is the call to follow Jesus Christ. You need to look around this room and say, my life is about you. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I help you? It's hard. It's rugged. It's not easy. But that's what it is to follow him, man. That's what it is. So I want to leave you with two quotes. Um, and and I, They're both kind of lengthy. Um, and, and then I want to show you something that's really awesome in, in the midst of this. This is a quote. So I said I'm going to quote Spurgeon every week. So far we're three for three. Okay, Let's keep it going. Um, Jesus... Spurgeon. Jesus, Peyton Manning, Spurgeon. Okay. Um, This is what it says. Christ must be all as your principal object in life. Your chief good, your great aim must be to glorify Christ on the earth in the hope and expectation of enjoying him forever above. But as it regards some of you, Christ is not your all. You think more of your shop than you do of him. You were up early in the morning, uh, looking at your ledgers all day long, toiling at your business. Do not mistake me. The, the true Christian will say, I know that I am bound to be jil- diligent in business, but I want to work for eternity. Are you making this world your all? Then hear this, this is big, especially those of you who don't know Jesus Christ or are trying to figure out Jesus Christ. Poor souls. If you are, the world and the fashion thereof are passing away. Your all? will soon be gone. The, very, uh, the things that, that you want to put in front of Jesus, what's so bizarre is it's, it's such a terrible trade. You're giving up the king of glory, where he cares more about your joy than even you do, but you think this is what's going to bring you happiness, but he cares more about that than you do. And as he says, follow me, it's not because he likes to watch you suffer, but he knows in the midst of you giving these things to him, they're better in his hands than they are in yours. This is the call. This is what's beautiful. And you know what's beyond all of that? You know what the undertone of this whole text is? It's what Jesus is doing. Because any of us who were born and raised in America or anywhere else, for the most part of all of history, we know one true reality. If you've spent any time in school after high school, you have to, for the most part, apply to go to another school, don't you? Uh, If you want to go to a college, you have to apply to that college. Unless you're some type of athlete and they're offering you scholarships, the average person has to apply to go to a college. If you've seen Ip Man, IP Man, legit ninja, ninja movie, okay? Um, there's this where he's a kung fu master and these people have to come and ask him, hey, we want to learn kung fu from you. We want you to be our sensei, okay? Th- this, is, this is traditionally what happens and it's no different in the Bible. The way this would play out is um, a disciple who would get all of his work done, the the guy Paul, who wrote uh, the most part of the New Testament, um, studies under a guy named Gamal. And he sees Gamal, and for him to go ask Gamal, he has to memorize the first five books in the Bible. So he memorizes these first five books, and he goes, hey, I I think I'm worthy enough to be your disciple now. Can I follow you? And Gamal says, yes, you can follow me. Or he says, no, you can't follow me. See, the student pursues the teacher, but that's not what happens, is it? against culture, against what is supposed to happen, Jesus seeks after his disciples. Jesus calls his disciples. Jesus comes after us. We don't try to earn it. We don't try to to get our accolades up there, put all of our chips in the good corner and say, okay, I think I've got enough righteous Jesus. I think I've got enough righteousness in my hand. Do you accept me? That is not what takes place, is it? It's Jesus who says, hey, follow me. And he comes and he pursues you. Hear me when I say this. It is no different today, man. Because you can't see him doesn't mean that's not happening. He is walking amidst you and he's saying, son, daughter, listen to me. I know that you have nets that you're not willing to let go. But if you would follow me, if you would pursue me, all the joy you are looking for will be found. Jesus comes after you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of what Jesus does. And may we hold tight to that. May we not let go of that. And because of that true story, because of that great gift, may we absolutely give our all. Last quote, and then I'm going to pray. Josh, don't kill me. I went way over time. Um, A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II. He's a pastor, and his question is, if I'm a pastor in World War II and Hitler is doing the things that he is doing, but I'm supposed to submit to all authority, what do I do? Because he is killing innocent lives, and that's not just. So how do I, like Tyler, figure out how to navigate the right thing to do in the wrong situation? So should he try to kill Hitler? Well, yes, he tries, okay? Okay, so he, he's this pastor and he's, he's begin to ask the question, listen, if Jesus has died for me, then there is a cost to that death. There is something that goes, hey, wait a minute, it's not just about me anymore, but this costs my life. I should be giving is all. And literally, that is what's taking place for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In World War II, he has to go, I'm going to try to assassinate a leader. I'm going to try to kill Hitler. I have to do the right thing here. And even though I'm struggling with what's going on, it's costly. This grace that Jesus is pursuing you, it costs us everything. And so he writes a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And and he talks about something that is amazing that I think we as Americans can relate to. The fact that what he sees over and over with Christians is something he calls cheap grace that we we see what God has done and we've cheapened it. We've made it average, we've made it eh, we've made it, I just do this, I'm not right. And that's what it is. And this is what he says, a long quote, and then I promise I'll pray. This is what he says cheap grace is. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolation without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, though, is the true hidden treasure in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the, uh, the, the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ. For those sake, a man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ in which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the grace which must be sought again and again and Again the gift which must be asked for, the door in which must be knocked on. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, but it is grace because it gives a man true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son, for you were bought at a price. And what costs God much? cannot be cheapened by us.